The reading today is taken from John chapter 13, verses 31 to 35. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, he will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you, love one another, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Have you ever felt let down by someone? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe a friend or relative, a partner even. Perhaps you felt betrayed by a group of people, a community, a school or work colleagues, neighbours, politicians, even the church. How did you feel at those times? Betrayed? Cheated? Bereaved, sad, lonely, just a few words I could think of. But for some people, these feelings can stay for a long time, causing a paralysis of trust that is isolating and seems to block out all hope of experiencing and demonstrating love again. In today's reading from John, Jesus was facing the same tough reality of betrayal. This relatively short passage is dropped into John's account of the Last Supper. Judas had just been identified as his, for his betrayal, and the passage begins as he leaves the room. Well, if you read on from this passage... It directly goes on to Jesus predicting that Peter will deny him three times that very night before the cock crows. Jesus certainly knew about the pain of betrayal and being let down by those closest to him at that time. He was human too. And I get a lot of encouragement from the fact that he was, has walked in human shoes and experienced our human emotions. This absolutely must have included a feelings associated with betrayal. Yet, his response is quite incredible. It runs against the grain of our human nature and desire to draw ourselves away from others or even cast the finger of blame. No. Jesus' words and actions speak of a revolutionary call to love. The first thing that Jesus does after Judas left the room in verse 31 in the passage that we read was to refer to God being glorified through the Son of Man. This kind of sentence can be found throughout John's writing and it has a great deal of depth to it which I'm not going to totally unpack for you now. But to me, 
concentrating on this passage, I feel that Jesus is saying, now is the time when this thing that I've been talking about is happening. It also seems powerful to me that at this pinpoint moment in time, when everything is unravelling and feels like it's falling apart, Jesus points to God. He knows this is all part of the plan of restoration, hope, and ultimately love that God has prepared throughout time. As Jesus starts to focus more towards his disciples and his big take-home message to them, I cannot ignore the way that he dresses, addresses the disciples as my children. It really just kept ringing through to me that I should try and say something. Interestingly, as I was about to write this part of my talk, um, and I was deliberating about whether to include it, um, my children came downstairs. I got up nice and early to write, try and write the sermon. And Hannah just sat quietly next to me, stating that she was helping me. It was beautiful, and she patiently sat there. But, if I'm honest, it wasn't helping. Sitting, writing a talk, desperately trying to work out how to put my thoughts into words with a six-year-old just sitting there staring at me was not particularly helpful. Then Benjamin turned up. He was less bothered about what I was doing and just sat on my lap and gave me a big hug before asking for his breakfast. At that point, I abandoned ship quick before the whole lot got deleted. <laughs> but you know, I think this beautifully sums up Jesus' relationship with the remaining disciples in this passage. Jesus is stirred up knowing that God's plan is swinging into action. This is actually happening. He is desperate for the disciples to hear and understand what he is saying to them. But although they hear the words, the disciples just don't get it. They can't understand the enormity of the events they're about to witness. And David's right, people still try to get their heads around it fully and we're getting there. But, you know, 2,000 years later... It's still not totally clear. A bit like my children, the disciples try to react in a way that feels right to them, which is a bit different for each of them. But they just don't get the bigger picture. Jesus demonstrates his states in the midst this in the midst of, of this by referring to the disciples as children. Not in a way that's patronising and unkind, but in a way that is gentle, caring, and desperate for them to understand, and, but acknowledges that they just need more time to get their heads around this. I think Jesus still holds out, I like to think, sorry, that Jesus still holds out that same patience and gentleness with me when I let my humanness get in the way of his plans for me. Then, in verse 34, Jesus says a phrase that has become so well known, so cherished to Christians throughout the world, 
and yet something that people throughout time have struggled to do. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. In a passage that is framed on both sides by darkness and denial by his friends, at a time when Judas has left to fulfill his final act of betrayal, Jesus' simple but starkly difficult message is love. We all have our own experiences of love and, and what it means to us. I asked my children while they were sitting there what it was to them. One of them said love was mummy huggles, which was nice. The other quite deeply said it's all around us all the time. And I pray that continues to be her experience. Solomon in Song of Songs, chapter 8, talks about love being as strong as death and burning like a mighty flame that many waters cannot quench, rivers cannot wash away. That feels magnificent. Wouldn't that be amazing to receive? But, well, a bit costly to give. But then, let's think about what Jesus said again. Love one another as I have loved you. Yes. Now let me think about that. Yes, Jesus was encouraging and nurturing. Yes, he healed the sick. Yes, he prayed for his friends. Yes, he was honest and did correct his disciples when it was needed. And that in itself all feels pretty hard to live up to, if I'm honest. But beyond this passage, Jesus went on to stand trial for offences he didn't commit, to face torture and a horrific death out of love for every one of us. It is fair to say that loving like Jesus is likely to be costly. And it is sometimes going to hurt. But this way of loving has a transformational power that is as limitless, limitlessness, limitless as God's love. Perhaps. That's all the more reason why we need to keep God's glory at the heart of everything, just as Jesus modelled at the beginning of this passage. If we do keep our eyes and heart fixed on the power of God, even the biggest mountains can start to feel a bit more manageable. After Jesus ascended back to heaven and the disciples had received the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, they were soon challenged to consider who the each other that Jesus was talking about actually were. I think perhaps they thought initially it was just the people in the room and it might have grown to a few Jewish friends. 
as their love did start to attract all kinds of people, it started to attract Gentiles, which was a huge challenge for the early church. And if we truly allow God to open our minds and imagination to the depths and reaches of his love, we too may well be challenged about who we need to love and how far we need to go to demonstrate this love. But this radical love has the power to transform the world, to replace all the pain of loss, betrayal and corruption with hope, respect and love for all One of my favourite, one of them, one of my favourite Bible passages is Revelation 21, John's vision of a new heaven and a new earth. Several years ago at Spring Harvest, I was introduced to a modern rewriting of this passage based on London at that time, about 10 years ago. We were asked to imagine how a new heaven and a new earth would look in our neighbourhoods and workplaces and explore if God can talk us through our imagination. So if we let our imaginations kind of work with how, how God would, would want that to be, to let that new heaven and that new earth break through. And then maybe go from there to see what we could do to perhaps make that vision a reality. What I'm going to do now is just read through that passage that, um, that, 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 that I was read to in Spring Harvest. It's based on London, but I would love you to go from here and perhaps think about it in terms of Whitstable or Faversham or Herne Bay or wherever you come from, maybe your places of work as well, and just think how it could relate to you and your life and how even the impossible things can suddenly be made possible through God. It was eight o'clock on Monday morning. I was standing at Lambeth North tube station and I saw a new London coming down from the heavens. I saw a teenager leaping out of bed with joy, laughing at the freshness of the morning. I saw elderly ladies skipping down Kennington Road. I saw children paddling in the River Thames. I saw a football match in Kennington Park and the teams were mixed people from every people group. Asylum seekers and taxi drivers, policemen and prisoners, pensioners and politicians. People from every race and class playing and laughing in the sun. I saw a street party And the people were eating and dancing because there was hope again. I looked across the community of South London, a community of hope, a community of grace, a community of warmth. And in the clearness of the morning, I looked down into Elephanton Castle and there was no more asthma, no more unwanted pregnancies, no more debt, no more violence, No more overcrowding. 
and nobody was too busy. The River Thames was flowing with crystal clear water. There were no more needles or condoms in the park. No more sorrow of family breakdown. No more poverty, no more need, no more unemployment or mind-numbing jobs. No more hopelessness. No more sadness and tears, only joy and laughter. No more discrimination. No more drunken clubbing. No threats, no fears. The dividing wards were gone. Families and neighbours were restored. There was no more rubbish, no dealers, no guns, no knives, no dangerous dogs. There were no racial tensions, just one harmonious mix of technicolour. And I looked and I saw kids playing football in the street and the neighbours cheering them on. I saw homes without locks on the doors, where a welcome was always guaranteed. I saw a playground with climbing frames that weren't rusty, where children threw themselves in the air without the fear of harm, where the teenagers helped the little ones up on the highest climbs. I saw a London where neighbours shared favours and returned them without pressure or obligation. I saw a London where hearts were unbroken. Partnerships were lasting, peaceful and happy. I saw a London where families eat and play together. I saw a London where tears were wiped away. I wonder what that would look like right here. And I wonder if God is calling any of us try to make that happen so that that glimpse of his kingdom can come here right now. The thing about love, there's so much wonderful stuff to say, but I just want to finish with a couple of lines from Ephesians as a little prayer for us all as we go back out to the world. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen.